good to see you this morning, New Life East. We're changing our space up a little bit and experimenting and changing the order of service up, experimenting. So don't be alarmed at that. We haven't forgotten how to do New Life East. We're just trying some new things on for size. Uh, it is good to see you this morning. If you're giving this morning, just to mention that, uh, there are four ways to give uh, up on the screen behind me. Um, so you can uh, do that. And then also one thing we mentioned last week, for those of you that weren't here, uh, my new book, Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers, uh, released about a week and a half ago. I appreciate that. Thanks. Uh, and so we had copies available last week for sale. And then we've got some more out in the lobby for you after the service. And so buy a copy uh, or two, give them to your friends, give them to people that um, I told a long story about this last week. You have to watch the sermon to hear it. But I wrote this book uh, in large part for people who are beyond the four walls of the church to try to woo them back in to the beauty of Jesus. And so this is a book that's really written with your unbelieving friends in mind. And so if you have some folks that uh, you're talking with and trying to woo them into the church, I think that this book will be a help to them. So buy some copies uh, for them. A little preview on what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I have, I'm working on a doctorate right now. Uh, through Western Theological Seminary, and that involves a couple week-long intensives uh, every year, one in April and then one in October. And so I've got one coming up. It's going to be in the UK. Um, so I leave on Friday, and then I get back the following, like two Mondays after that. So gone for about 11 days or so, which is super fun for me. It's also going to be very fun for you. Uh, next week, Pastor Rory is covering Nehemiah 9 with us. Can you give some love to Pastor Rory, everybody, this morning? And then... The week after that, you have an incredible treat coming your way. Pastor Jeremias Tamares from New Life, Nueva Vida, our Hispanic congregation, is coming to bring the word to us. Two Sundays from now, you guys, you have not heard preaching until you've heard Pastor Jeremias preach. He's going to be here with his wife, Ana Tamares. She's going to be translating some with him. It'll be a bit of a co-teach, and these two are fire and uh I wish I could be here for it. It's going to be amazing. So uh, make sure to show up for both of those two Sundays. It's going to be great Sundays. We're continuing in the book of Nehemiah. And so I'll invite you to open in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. We know the story of Nehemiah pretty well at this point. Nehemiah is living in the 5th century BC. He's the cupbearer uh, to the Persian king, King Artaxerxes. And he's cut to the heart by what he hears happening in Jerusalem. That the folks had started rebuilding the city but because of opposition that they had run into, uh, that project all of a sudden was defunct. And so Nehemiah starts pulling together a plan to see the city rebuilt. And Artaxerxes blesses that plan and Nehemiah heads back and he rallies the troops and they all get together and they start putting the city back together. So we've talked about some of the dynamics of that and how that relates to our own sense of calling, the things that God has invited us into that actually do make a difference in the world. And then one of the things that we talked about last week was how all along in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah faces opposition and it never gets any easier for him. As the book wears on, it's like the intensity of the opposition just kind of ratchets up. And so Nehemiah is such a beautiful case study in what it looks like for us to be faithful followers of Jesus. Because as you know, when you start following Jesus more and more and go deeper and deeper into your calling, the intensity also ratchets up for you. And uh, you never actually graduate from the difficulty of discipleship. But all the way to the very end, we're always carrying our cross with Jesus, which is what Nehemiah shows us. This week here in Nehemiah chapter 5, I think, uh, and a number of scholars, uh, when you read the commentaries on Nehemiah, they will say this, that Nehemiah, even though he wasn't a prophet and he wasn't a priest and he wasn't a king, Nehemiah was one of the greatest leaders that Israel ever saw. I mean, right up there with David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah and Isaiah, the dude was just a leader 
par excellence. And I think that this moment here that we're about to turn to represents, to me anyway, this represents the highest and the best moment of Nehemiah's leadership. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the entire chapter, Nehemiah chapter 5. And then I'm going to draw two things out of it that I think are very germane for us when we think about faithfulness to our own sense of calling. Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1, the scripture says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry, everybody say great outcry, against their fellow Jews. And some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we have the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and vineyards are belonging to others. And when I heard their outcry, everybody say, when I heard. When I heard. What does that remind you of? Remind you a little of chapter one, right? Remember that? When I heard the report of what was going on. Remember that big emotion wakes up in Nehemiah. Now we're getting big emotion from him again. And it's noteworthy to pay attention to where that emotion is going. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And I pondered them and I accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as it's possible, we've bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. And so I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. I give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything anymore from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who doesn't keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and empty. And at this, the whole assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until the 32nd year, 12 whole years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden. Everybody say heavy burden. Heavy burden on the people. And they took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to the food and the wine. And their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. And all the men were assembled there for the work. And we did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every day, an abundant, every 10 days, an abundant uh, supply of wine and all kinds of all kinds. And in spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were very heavy upon these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all that I have done for these people. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said... Let's pray. And so may your word this morning be like fire. 
may it be like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. May your teaching also this morning fall like rain upon us. The places where our lives are dry and desolate, we pray that rain from on high would come, that you would come and break up the fallow ground. We pray that you would moisten the soil again, and we pray that you would plant the imperishable seed of the word of God in us. That you teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees so that we may keep them to the end. That you would make for us, make us into a faithful people that reflect the character of our good Lord made flesh, Jesus Christ. We pray that Nehemiah's example this morning, we pray that it would point us to the Savior. And we pray that we would fall down at his feet and worship him, bringing all of our treasures to him, opening up all that we are and all that we have to him for God's glory and for the world's good. We pray these things. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Just to paint the picture, the scenario here, and we saw it in the book of Nehemiah chapter 5 as we read through But you know what's been going on. All of these people have come from the surrounding towns and villages to help with the rebuilding project here in Jerusalem. And as we learn later, one chapter later in Nehemiah 6, they're gone for the better part of two months. Most of these men away from their fields and away from their vineyards and away from their families. It's already a tough burden on them. But then the other thing that we discover in this chapter is that there's been a famine throughout the land. So now we've got a bit of a recession going on. It's kind of lean months are already taking place. So people are already hard strapped, but they're giving their best that they can give to this effort. So we have this famine going on. But then we also learn that whereas at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, it just seems like King Artaxerxes is just kind of so generous to them. Oh yeah, take whatever you need to rebuild the city. Now all of a sudden we learn that there's a royal tax. Somebody's going to pay for it, right? And so the king is actually extracting now extra resources from Jerusalem in order to pay for Jerusalem. So you've got the men are away for a number of months. You've got a famine in the land. You've got taxes all of a sudden are starting to skyrocket. And then on top of all of that, big surprise, you have powerful people in the land of Israel. Now they're all of a sudden taking advantage of those who are less powerful. They're loaning them grain, but they're charging interest for it, trying to make money off of people's hardship. Moreover, if they don't have enough money uh, to buy the grain, they're allowing them to mortgage their fields and their vineyards, which is a big offense to Almighty God, as we read in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they're selling off their ancestral lands to the, for these powerful people who are all too happy to just kind of increase their state at somebody else's, at somebody else's expense. And then... If that weren't bad enough, some people in Israel, because they couldn't get the grain and maybe they didn't have enough land to sell, but they do have sons and daughters. And so they're taking their own flesh and blood and they're selling their kids as slaves to other people in Israel. Do you know what Israel, do you know what Jerusalem is all of a sudden turning into? It's turning into Egypt. The very situation that God redeemed his people from so many centuries earlier, all of a sudden, and actually you see it throughout the history of Israel, that this just keeps happening, that Egypt just kind of keeps reincarnating itself in the people of Israel. Egypt all of a sudden is happening. And we know that whoever's writing Nehemiah, probably Nehemiah himself, intends for us to make that connection with Egypt because he talks about the outcry that's raised against the fellow Jews. Do you know where one of the first places we see that word outcry is? 
In Exodus chapter 3, Moses standing at the burning bush and the Lord says, the cry of the Israelites has reached my ears and so I've come down to do something about it. The outcry of the poor and the vulnerable and the dispossessed, the outcry of those that are on the underside of power, I'm telling you, you can hardly turn a page in scripture without realizing how profoundly it matters to God. And when Nehemiah is in the midst of this situation, the rebuilding is taking place and all of a sudden he sees Egypt taking shape in front of his very eyes. Nehemiah, that big emotion that he, he is capable of experiencing, it wakes back up again. When I heard their outcry, he says, I was what? Was very angry. <laughs> He's embodying something of the concern of God now in the midst of this situation. And here's what I love about the text. The text gives us, because all of us are going to run into those moments where something is happening to people that are under our care, under our watch, and we're impacted by it. And Nehemiah actually gives us sort of four steps for what do we do with that big emotion when it comes? And this is not the bulk of the message, but I want to give this to you really quick. Number one, here's what Nehemiah does. The first thing that he does is he ponders it in his heart. This is a critical first step that many of us miss. We get angry and we move to action right away. But Nehemiah gets angry and what does he do? He ponders it in his heart. God, what's the right thing here? God, how am I supposed to respond to this? How am I supposed to behave to this? What do you need from me? What are you asking for me? Number one, he ponders. Number two, he does this. He addresses the guilty party. So he doesn't just kind of hold it over here in his heart and just kind of think about it forever. Nor does he start like a lot of gossip about those bad people out there that are doing bad things. Once he gets clear on what the right thing to do is, what does he do? But he addresses the guilty party. He goes and he has a conversation with those guys. Hey, can we just talk for a second about what's happening right here? Number three, he does this. He puts the matter in covenant perspective. He doesn't just talk about how he's personally offended by the thing that's happening. But he says, look, this isn't right. But shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? Don't you remember the God who delivered us from Egypt? Don't you remember the God who brought us out of the land of slavery? Don't you remember the God who with his righteous right hand, his powerful right hand and right arm, that he delivered us and he's called us to live a certain way. Are, are you sure that what you're doing here rises to the level of what God has called us to? So number one, he ponders. And number two, he addresses the guilty party. And number three, he puts it inside covenant perspective. Because that's where all the authority is, by the way. Is that we remember what God has spoken and what we've heard and how we're called to live. And so he puts it in covenant perspective. And then number four, he does this. He calls them to take action. Pulls a meeting together and he says, listen guys, this is how this is going to go. We're allowed to do this, but we're not allowed to do this. This is how we must behave. This is how we must stop behaving. And he sets a course for righteousness and all the people begin to respond to it. And justice is done for the vulnerable in the land of Israel because of the faithful action and the faithful witness of Nehemiah. It's so interesting to me, by the way. When I think about what Nehemiah must have thought about his calling when he got into what he was doing, you know, he thought that he was going back to Jerusalem just to rebuild a wall. But all of a sudden he changes from being a general contractor to being something like a social worker. As it turns out, it's not walls that God is really interested in. As it turns out, it's people that God is really interested in. So I want to draw two points out of this as you think about your own calling. And I'm going to position this as like a little catechism class here. A little question and answer by Andrew Arndt. Ready for this? 
as we think about our own calling, let's ask this question. How does God judge our faithfulness to our calling? And I don't know what calling that is. All of us, I think, actually have several callings in our lives. Calling in marriage, calling in singleness, calling in parenting, calling in our careers, calling in the body of Christ. We all have a multitude of callings. And so one of the questions that we ought to be asking pretty often is, how does God judge our faithfulness to our calling? And there are lots of ways to answer that question. I think that God has a number of different bars that he puts in front of us that he measures our faithfulness by. But one of the critical bars that he raises for us is is this answer. By how we treat the most vulnerable under our care. I want you just to ponder that for a second. Because if we're not clear about this, we will exercise our energies in the wrong direction. And we will think that there are things that we're doing or things that we're trying to achieve that matter to God that don't actually really matter to God all that much. God measures our faithfulness to our calling at least by this, by how we treat the most vulnerable who are under our care. As a pastor, I think about this often. When I arrive at the great judgment seat of God and I'm called to give an account for the life that I have lived and how I've stewarded my calling, if Nehemiah is telling us the truth and the rest of the scriptures are telling us the truth, then when I arrive there, the thing that's not going to happen is God is not going to go, well, Andrew Arndt is here. We really like this guy. Have you seen the sermons that he preached? Great sermons. Oh, you did what, Andrew? You pastored a church that had how many people in it? Oh my goodness, Holy Spirit, did you know that? Look at this guy here. It's it's not going to happen. You had how many followers on Instagram? Oh, wow. It's not going to matter. Do you know what is going to matter? I think about this as a pastor. What's going to matter is how I treated your kids in this church. What's going to matter, what's going to matter is as an overseer of this community, when injustices and infractions against what's right took place, did I rise up with my voice to repair the breach in those relationships or to make sure that justice was done? And it doesn't matter how big this church grows. New Life East gets to be 1,000 people, 1,500 people, 2,000 people. It will not matter to God if I didn't do what I was supposed to do in making sure that this house was a house of justice and mercy and faithfulness. You know the words of the prophet Micah. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, Walk humbly with you. That's how God measures me. I think about New Life Church. I think about all the things that we have done in our nearly 40-year history. I think about all the great things that we have achieved, all the great things that we have accomplished. I think about all of the people that come to New Life Church and have been drinking from the well here. I think of the buildings that we've built and the things that we've done. But do you know that none of it, none of it is nearly as important to God as how we have all along our journey treated the most vulnerable members 
of our community. That's the thing that God is looking at. That's the thing consistently throughout the scripture. This is the thing that awakens the most powerful emotions on behalf of Almighty God. It's the vulnerable ones. It's the little ones. It's those who are on the fringes. And if we didn't learn this from the Old Testament, we certainly would learn it from the example of Jesus. Think about what Jesus says here in Matthew 25, coming to the end of his ministry and talking about the great moments of judgment. And Jesus says this, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in. But I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in and eating clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it. Not just on my behalf, but you did it for me, directly to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you are cursed in the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Angels, For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. And I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? Because of course... If we had ever seen that with you, we would have taken care of you. And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go to a way to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Where is God in our experience, friends? God is disguised in the faces of the most vulnerable who are under our care and within our power to help. And we all want to have an interaction with God and show God how much we love God. And we and God goes, I'm right here in front of you. Who are those people that I've called you to serve? Who are those people that I've called you to provide a canopy of protection for? I'm in the faces of those people. And back to New Life Church, I think about all the things that we've done over the years there are some things in New Life Church's history that really, really impress me. I think about 15 years or so ago when Pastor Brady came here, became the senior pastor here. One of the things, and he'll tell you this, that it was reading the book of Nehemiah that helped him understand his own calling in this community. And reading Nehemiah chapter 5 here helped him understand that the thing that New Life Church is supposed to be about, almost above everything else, we faithfully worship Jesus, and then we're going to go ahead and take care of the widows and the orphans and our distress in our community. And so 15 years ago, he started a conversation with some city leaders and discovered that there was an enormous amount of people in El Paso County that were sleeping, families that were sleeping in their cars and single moms that were on the street. We can't just let that happen on our watch. We have resources. We have the ability to help. So what are we going to do? We started pulling resources together and created the Dream Centers, the Free Women's Clinic, 
at Mary's home. If you don't know Mary's home, we've got about 20 single mothers living in Mary's home that they're part of a three-year process of rebuilding the foundations of their life and getting them back in homes in the free women's clinic, state-of-the-art medical care for women that are considering abortions, considering terminating pregnancies, and they go and they receive that care and lives are being saved by it. And we're hel- so those are the things that God is interested in. And I think about when we merged with Iglesia Nueva Vida, our Hispanic congregation, about six years ago, seven years ago now, Nueva Vida was 125, 150 or so people. And many of those folks had not finished out their paperwork for becoming citizens here. And we were getting ready to go into election cycle where so many of them were so very afraid that their families were going to be torn apart and people deported and all of that. And so we work on this merger with Nueva Vida. And knowing that all of those things were going on, Pastor Brady and the elders of the church said, we just want you to know that we have an army of lawyers in this community. And whoever in your community needs help getting their paperwork figured out and getting themselves all legal and squared away so that the family is not separated, we want you to know that we will provide that for you for free. It's our joy, it's our honor, it's our privilege to give that to you. But I think about all of the things that New Life Church has done. I am, I am positive if the scriptures are anywhere near being accurate that that's the thing that moves the heart of God most. That when you're taking care of people that are closest to the heart of God, think about what Jesus says. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. I was on the fringes. You brought me in. I was sick. I was in prison. You came to visit me. I needed my paperwork figured out. You helped me figure it out. I was an unwed mother getting ready to give birth to a child that I couldn't take care of, but you took care of me. Whatever you did for one of those, you did it unto. That's how we get close to God. As we find the places where people are being taken advantage of or people are being left behind or people are being overlooked and we decide to step into that because that's, that's where God is. You can do it in your life. Every single one of you can do it in your life. I think about Justin Mendel, Justin sitting over here part of our care portal team. It's one of the ways that we meet needs in our community. And Justin one day saw that there was a grandmother living down close to the city in a rough area of the city. This grandmother is taking care of her two little grandkids. Parents are not in the picture and grandma doesn't have very many resources at all. Her house was pretty run down. She's trying to take care of these kids and she had a busted lock on the door. That's part of how she wound up on care portal. I just need somebody to come by and fix the lock on the door. So Justin goes down there with the stuff to fix the door. He gets to the house and she sees that what she'd been doing at night, think about this, what she'd been doing at night is she'd been pushing the couch in front of the door so that nobody would break in. Just doing the best that she can to provide safety for her grandkids. And so Justin goes down there and moves the couch out of the way, puts a new lock back on the door, gets the door all squared away. And then because she had had the the couch in front of the door, she was actually like the way that they let themselves out to go take the kids to school in the morning is that they were crawling out. This old woman is crawling out a back window. So get the door squared away and now you have like a, you know, you've got like a more livable situation. And then she's walking the kids a great distance to school because her car was broken down. And so Justin saw to it that a new vehicle gets put in this family. So of all of the things that are happening at New Life East, of all the things that are happening in our community, what are the things that are the most important? But if we go home patting ourselves on the back because we go, oh my gosh, We had 478 people at our service this weekend. And God's like, I don't care. Are you taking care of the vulnerable? 
Are you making sure the grandmothers who are trying to take care of their little grandkids, her little grandkids, and they don't have locks on the doors and they don't have good transportation, are you leveraging what you have to take care of them? That's when you touch the pleasure of God. That's when you touch the delight of God. That's the kingdom. And Jesus says that if you seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, what happens? For all the other stuff. Is added to you as well. I think about Tim Mazza sitting over here. A couple weekends ago, there was a fire at an apartment complex in the neighborhood. Tim and I are texting right away in the morning. I'm just learning about it on a Saturday morning. And before I could barely get off the phone, Tim Mazza's over there shuttling people back and forth, trying to get them help, whatever you did. Like, and so my house was burned down and you came to visit me, whatever you did for the least one of these brothers or sisters of mine. You did it unto me. I think about you students that are sitting in the room here. All of us have people that it's within our power to help. My son Gabe, I'm proud of my kids for so many reasons. They excel academically and they're doing, they're good kids. They have good friends and they're making good decisions. But the things that make me most proud of them as a dad are when they reflect the heart of God. And last year, Gabe, one of his friends came to him and said, Gabe, one of the mutual friends that they have in their little friend circle had been threatened by a group of students that they were going to find him and corner him and beat him up after the school. And so Gabe and his little friend, at the drop of a hat, they formulated this plan. Okay, as soon as the bell rings, we're going to run across the school and we're going to find our friend, Brandon is his name. We're going to find Brandon and we're going to get him across the house to another one of our friend's house to make sure that he has safe shelter, that he's taken care of, that people aren't going to... He came home and he told me that story. And I just went, Gabe, that may be like... But I think of all the things that you could do as a kid to make me proud of you, that makes me the most proud of you. That you put your butt on the line for somebody else. And you knew, you knew darn well that if word got out to these other kids that you were part of the reason that they couldn't beat up this one kid, that that maybe means that your own reputation and your own safety are at risk. But you did it anyway because it was the right thing to do. Question, friends. When are we most faithful to our calling? It's when we're taking care of the most vulnerable. And are you going to stand before the judgment seat of God and God is not going to ask you how much money you made in your life? He's not going to ask you how powerful your business became. He's not going to ask you how many books you wrote. He's not going to ask you how many connections you had. He's not going to ask you how big you grew your counseling practice to be. He's not going to ask you how big your ministry was. He's not going to ask you how good your retirement was. And how many places in the world did you visit? Oh my gosh, that's so cool. You went to Cancun. You're amazing. We are accountable for the people that are underneath us that need our help. That's who we're accountable for. Which takes me to the second question that I want to ask you, catechism class here. When are we most God-like? Answer. Answer. When the basic movement of our life is down and out rather than up and in. Down and out. That's discipleship, friends. Down and out, not up and in. And do you know why I say this? Because this is the pattern of Nehemiah's life. Think about this man sitting in the citadel of Susa, cupbearer to the king, wealthy, taken care of. Life is comfortable for him. But the call of God grips him. And what happens? He starts making a movement down 
out of the palace and out towards these people who need help. And as he gets himself involved in the life of these people, all manner of difficulty comes to him. All manner of opposition comes to him. And then all of a sudden he sees that there's a justice issue at work in the community. And he throws himself in the middle of that. And then we learn, I don't know if you caught it at the end of the chapter, but we learn that Nehemiah does not just, think about this, he does not just do justice for these people, but the scripture actually tells us that there was an allotment, there was a royal tax that the governor would tax people so that he could live kind of on the high horse as he's overseeing everything that's happening in the community. This is great, guys, good job, you know, keep rebuilding the wall. Meanwhile, I've got all this nice food over here and this nice wine over here, and I've got my pocketbook line. And of course, I'm a man of the people. I get out there every once in a while, you know, and I walk around the walls and I make sure that everything's going pretty good and stuff. But you know what Nehemiah does? He forfeits that. He goes, I'm not going to take that tax. I'm not doing that. Moreover, out of my own salary, my own money, every single day, 150 people from around the community are going to come and they're going to sit at my table. Yes, some of them are Jewish officials, but some of them are just the down and out. But you can imagine Nehemiah walking around the city and going, wait, are you hungry today? Get on over here. I got lunch. Wait, you're saying that you ran out of grain last week? Oh, come on over. I got good food and wine for you to eat. Oh, you're saying you're up against it. You had to sell your kids into slavery. Well, I'm going to rectify that situation. And also where your tummies are growling. Come on over to my table. He prepares a table for these people right in the middle of the city. And it's not just Jewish people. And it's not just the hungry people inside of Israel. And it's not just the officials. But the scripture actually tells us that it's the foreigners. He brings outsiders in to his table Remember how the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the, in the presence of who? Well, we learn in Nehemiah that the table is not prepared in the presence of our enemies so that it can be a nana nana boo boo to them. The table is prepared in the presence of the enemies so that we can feed even our enemies and the foreigners. And in this way, Nehemiah is a figure of the one who was to come who was sitting at the right hand of his father, who had all glory and honor. He was robed in all glory and honor. And he laid, beside, laid aside all power and all privilege and all esteem. And he came down and he took the form of a servant. And he came among us and he washed our feet and he did justice among us. And he made sure that the outsiders were brought in. He made sure that the sick were healed. He made sure that the hungry were taken care of. And he made sure that even foreigners had a place at his table. How many times in the gospels do you see Jesus spreading a table and welcoming anybody and everybody into it? Friends, when are we most godlike? When the basic motion of our lives is down and, and not. And up and in is what the world teaches us. That the basic movement of our lives has got to be getting more stuff. Trying to build my perfectly secure little place. I'm trying to become a somebody. I'm trying to become a name, a somebody, a something. I'm trying to get bigger and better. I need a bigger house. I need a better house. I need more land. I need more money in my bank account. I need more contacts. I need more this. I need more that. And the scripture is telling us, no, you don't. Because what God does when God takes shape in the world is God goes down and out. God gets smaller. God gets humble. And if you want to go where God is, then you go 
there as well. One of my heroes in the history of Christianity is Rich Mullins. Some of you might remember his music. Back in the 80s and the 90s, Rich Mullins made a name for himself with the music that he was putting out, stuff that was just unbelievable, an unbelievable musician, unbelievable, uh, like the lyrics of Rich's songs were just incredible, made this huge splash. And before very long, Rich had tons of money coming in. And he's getting brought into all of the sort of, you know, upper chambers, the elite in Nashville and all of that. And people are fawning over him and giving him all kinds of privilege and this and that. And money is flowing in from every direction. And Rich felt that all of that was a mortal threat to his soul. So you know what he did? Never wanted to lose touch with the heart of Jesus. Never wanted to lose touch with the heart of Jesus. And so what he did is he said, okay, this money could actually ruin me. All of a sudden, I'll lose touch with like that desperation for God and that humility that characterized my life when I first started walking with God. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull together a council of people that I trust, godly people. And I'm going to put my finances in their hands. And I'm going to let them actually run my money. And they're going to pay me out of the money that I make. But they're never going to pay me more than the average working class man in America makes. The rest of it, they're just going to give to charity. So do you know... That over the course of Rich Mullins' life, he never made more than $24,000 in a given year. Even though the money that came through, it was probably millions of dollars every year, went out to the poor and the hungry and the dispossessed and the naked. I tell you, whatever you did to the least one of these brothers and sisters of mine, who'd you do it for? There's something to that. And you go, okay, well, I'm not Rich Mullins. I can't be Rich Mullins. And I get it. We've all got our own calling that we have to walk out, out our own way of doing this. I've got a friend, just to go the other side of the spectrum. I've got a friend in this community, New Life Church, who's incredibly wealthy. I mean, he makes money hand over fist. And it's also one of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. Lives in a nice house and has nice stuff. But whenever you bump into him, it's just this. Just constantly giving, constantly giving. And I sat down with him for coffee not too long ago. And I said to him, I got to hear this story. Like how, just tell me about your life. What's the formation that took place in your life that made you like this? And he said, well, I saw it in the lives of the people who were closest to me. He said, you know, my dad, he said, my dad, when I was a kid, he owned this tire shop, really successful businessman. That as the years went by, he grew it into like six tire shops spread out across this area. And my dad made really good money. But my dad was always like so incredibly generous with his stuff. And we'd be sitting there, it'd be Thanksgiving or Christmas or the weekend or whatever. And my dad would get these phone calls from the church or phone calls from city leaders saying, hey, there are people in the community that need your help or there's this that needs to take place or that that needs to take place. And he said, if it was ever within my dad's power to act, to help somebody, he just did it. He said, and that left such an impact on me as a young guy. He said, and then at the height of my dad's business, there were some changes that took place in the national economy and my dad's business just crumbled. Like one day it was and the next day it was just gone. And all of a sudden, my parents were destitute. And I said, what did your parents do? He said, well, there was a wealthy judge in the town that was good friends with my mom and dad. And the judge was sick with cancer and was dying young. And the judge called his wife in and said, hey, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so who took care of all of those people, I just like, honey, what I want you to do is for the rest of their lives, make sure that they are taken care of. And so this friend got my friend's parents in a house and took care of them. Like for the rest of their lives, he said, I just something like that. I just saw it in my dad and I saw it in these people. So like my thing is I'm on this planet to make sure that whoever is within the range of my power to help, that I'm helping them. What I'm saying to you this morning, New Life East, 
is that God's goal in our lives is to make us like Jesus. And here's what we know about Jesus. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What's in your hands? What has God given you? What's the sphere of your influence? What's the space that God's given you? Who's under your care? Who's within the range of your power to help? What kind of justice can you work in the world that nobody else can work because it's just your space that God's given you? I'm saying to you that you're most like God when you step into that space with that awareness of those people. Would you stand this morning, East? Jesus, here we are before you. Friends, I want you to think about your callings. I want you to think about your life. Where God has called you, what he's called you to. I want you to think about the things that God has given you, what's in your hands. And I want you just now to begin to hear the tug of the spirit on your heart. God, would you open our eyes? Would you open our eyes to who's underneath us and who's around us and who our presence is a covering and a canopy for like Nehemiah's was. And I'm praying this morning, Spirit of the living God, that you would come and invade our spirits. That you would help us see the bright, smiling face of God in what Mother Teresa called the distressing disguise of the poor and the weak and the sick and the broken and the vulnerable and the hurting. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see your face and ears to hear your voice and a heart to know you in those places and to do right by you. For whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it unto me. Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us? I'm going to invite our servers to come forward this morning as we prepare our hearts to take communion. We'll have two communion stations up front here, one on the side and one on the other side. Just like we've done the last several weeks, I want to invite you to come forward and take the elements in your hand and then head back to your seat. And as you come and receive the elements, then Pastor Rory is going to lead us in communion. As you come and take the elements this morning, I want you to remember the story of Scripture. I want you to remember the story of our God who did not, who did not remain closed in on himself, but moved out towards us. Come, brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.
as we come to the table that the Lord has prepared for us, I'm reminded that throughout history, there were constantly Messiah figures who presented themselves. This happened not just in ancient history. We see it happen in modern times all the time. People who say that what they can give to us is something beyond life itself. And yet what we find to be true about all of those figures is that while some of them would make themselves poor, they would never do it quite the way Jesus did. They would never make themselves poor of material possessions and make themselves poor of life itself so that someone else might find it. And so as we come to the table today, as we eat of the body, we're reminded that Jesus didn't just make himself poor materially. He didn't just give up what he possessed. He gave up everything that he had for you on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it. New Life East, would you take that bread and would you break it? And when he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, which is made poor for you, which is going to be eliminated for you so that you one day would have eternal life. New Life East, would you take and would you eat? The beautiful thing in the way that Jesus gives up his life is that he doesn't remain dead. It's in fact through his death, through his surrender of his life, that eternal life is achieved for all of humanity. The night that he was betrayed, he also took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? New Life East, would you take and would you drink? And join with me as we end our service by singing the doxology. Lift your hands, receive this benediction, friends, as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. We'll invite our altar ministry team to be available for prayer. On the sides of our auditorium here, remember uh, Fellowship Hour in Connect Central. If you're new, we'd love to meet you in Connect Central as well. Copies of Streams in the Wasteland are available for you to purchase. We love you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.